This is the Love Swoon Podcast, powered by Love Admin's easy-to-use software that reduces your organization's admin and increases its income. Find out more at www.loveadmin.com. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the Love Swim podcast. It's me, Clive Marquis, again. And this week we have Brian McGuinness, um, on, who's the executive director of the British Swim Coaches Association. So, hello, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Great. So, today we were, as I said, we're going to talk a lot about the British Swim Coaches Association and what you guys get up to, and also more the development and change of the swimming industry and how we can help um, turn it into a more professional industry in itself, um, which as if you've listened to this podcast before, you know I'm a big, big supporter of. Um, but of course, we always start with the basics. So tell us about you, tell us about your swimming history and how that brought it about uh, your helping out with the British Swim Coach Association. Well, I've been involved in coaching both voluntarily and professionally for well over 40 years um, at various levels from grassroots through to what I like to call old style elite probably pre-funding days um where you know, i had a i served on a number of national teams and squads and um uh, worked through that you know place swimmers on on those programs um i've co- coached my fair share of national medalists at age group and senior level both in scotland and england uh, recently in wales um and also ntb levels again which i'm extremely proud of uh i've been on what was called the executive committee of the BSCA since 1992 um, as a lay member and then as the treasurer, ultimately becoming the, what was called the president. Uh, and for the last 24 years, I've been their executive director. Um, and I'll talk about you know, what that role entails, I'm sure, in due course. Um, but basically, I manage the office and the affairs of the association. And a large part of my work is representing coaches when they have a problem or if they need uh support regarding their professional roles with contracts grievances disciplinaries and when someone faces uh, a complaint through their employer or through a national governing body such as swim england's judicial processes so now we spend a lot of working uh, time working in those sorts of areas and they're far more prevalent than an awful lot of people understand i recognize or understand yeah no i I think that's really interesting because it's one thing that of course um Swim England and British Swimming there. We've never really had, well, and since you guys have been around, there's not not really within those organizations enough support for individual coaches and organizations in that sense, would you would you think or agree? Well, yeah, it, the, the BSC is, is structured in a way to deal with the requirements and the needs of any given time. Now, the body itself was set up way back in 1965 and uh, in an old, old pool called Derby Baths. Uh, so it's been around for over five decades. And you know, it's uh, whilst initially it was set up as a group of coaches under the steward, stewardship of a guy called George Bowl, um, who fought to give coaches a voice with the governing bodies, uh, the ASA as was. It still is, it just trades to Swim England now. Uh, but back then, coaches were not allowed on poolside. There was no such thing as a poolside or coaches pass. There weren't even warm-ups that are an awful lot of events. It was a BSCA that drove to get those things established and in place. Can you imagine turning up now to some of these swim meets and there's there's no warm-up? The coaches have got to pay to get the ticket and sit in the stands and can't be anywhere near their team who are sitting off 
somewhere else. That used to be what happened at events, and it was the BSCA that fought to bring those changes in, because that's what was happening in places like the USA. Um, so no, they mirrored that, and George Ball went on and worked in the USA, uh, but they mirrored that and got those changes brought around, and there's lots of stories that I could bore people to death with uh, not around all of that, but uh, today's not the place for that. Um, so now we've gone the other way, where coaches' passes and so on are, to a large extent, an income stream for coaches and national governing bodies. You know, West Midlands, 50 quid for a coach's pass for a bit of paper and oh. entry on Coolside last year. That's, That's pretty pricey. At, uh, <laughs> at, uh, regional. So now, th there's still work to be done in those areas, but we've sat on governing body committees, we've worked with governing bodies on developing things and moving things forwards. And you know, how that has occurred really depends upon the way that the wind's blowing at any particular time within any particular governing body. And whilst there's a far better coach presence uh, in the governance of the sport nowadays than there was back in 1965, obviously. Um, now, th there is always room for improvement, um, but what everyone's got to understand and recognise that a national governing body's got to answer, be answerable to their uh, financial masters and governing masters at UK Sport and Sport England, for example. So you know, they have to be structured in a way that allows them to... Uh, give the answers or operate in a way that, that meets their needs. But beyond that, it was the BSA who first in the 1990s established a code of conduct and ethics in, in, in the late 1990s, following on from the behaviours of coaches called by Paul Hickson and Mike Drew, who were despicable in what they did and how they abused children under their care. Um, and because of the code of ethics and conduct, we tried to establish internally and then was taken on by the ASA at first. We're now, we've now got what are the child safeguarding procedures that are in place and rightly in place. Uh, and we worked with the national governing bodies to establish them in the way that they, they now are. However, at that time, that saw a whole swing of uh, how coaches were viewed. Uh, lots of coaches were all tarred with the same brush as these horrible, terrible people. Um, and we had a whole swathe of allegations coming in. And that's what led to the, the BSA initially becoming part of a, a national trade union. And then eight years later, changing the way that they provided that service. Uh, but we still do. We still represent coaches um, when what may well be abuses of that system, where people target coaches in order to get out of it or get rid of a coach because of you know, what they see as right or wrong or someone's not being given a fair crack of the whip or whatever. So we continue to do that. Uh, and we continue to be the only body, regardless of what others may say, we are still the only body that offers legal guidance and support to coaches as a benefit of membership uh, since then. Uh, myself, my colleagues and our team of solicitors at Radar uh, provide coaches with unparalleled support uh, when they need it and when it's legally appropriate to do so. So, you know, it's a, a wide-ranging thing, but it's changed from we want to be able to go on poolside at a meet to being this is what legally is required because we deal with coaches who face people knocking on the door at three o'clock in the morning and saying, we'd like to arrest you. And uh, you know, we need to be geared up to be able to deal with that, and we are. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in itself, you've summed up there, the development of you as an organisation has changed dramatically in what mm. you can you're going out to offer. But then again, 
the sounds so silly to say, but the simplicity of it all, because it's things you would expect anyway. If this, I think it's later on one of the questions I was going to ask you anyway. If you're an accountant, you walk into your job there, you have certain expectations of what you expect um, to deal with, whether that be how your work colleagues treat you, how your boss treat you, stuff like this. Yeah, again, when you're a swim coach um, or those areas, <laughs> those expectations are fairly standard are not really there at all um, because of simple ways of ways swim clubs can be structured or areas like that. Totally agree. Being a professional coach is a lot more than just being paid. Um, it's for, it can be equally fantastic and frustrating in the role that, that you have. Not always necessarily with the swimmers, but the, the, the people that are paying for the service, which it could be the adults or whatever. Uh, that tends to be where the frustrations come from. The kids tend to be fine. Uh, but coaches get certificates for passing technical courses, but there's little support and training um, in becoming a, a better uh, professional. Um, there's no recognised professional standard, standards for sports coaching in this country, um, as there are in other professions. You talked about uh, accountancy, solicitors and so on. There's legally required standards. And if you look at the building industry, you've got what's called building regs that people got to operate to. Some of those are very heavily health and safety based because you don't want buildings falling down. But now, um, similarly, you know, in teaching and in the medical profession, there are professional and legal standards that are required, uh, requirements for people to operate within. There is no such thing in sports coaching, not just for swimming, but for any sport. So you know, that is something that will help to move things forward greatly, that the government sets legally binding standards. Now, lots of people say, well, there are standards. Well, the chief executive from England can make decisions upon someone's career at this moment in time. But based upon what? It's based upon um, their experience and their professional views upon things. It's not based upon professional set standards that are established by government, which is what it is within the medical profession and so on. You've got a qualification board on one side that hands out the, the training to say that someone <coughs> is competent and capable in that area and can do that job to that standard and be paid that amount. But you've then got other agencies within that that manage, that provide training that allow people to continue to maintain the professional standards so that we know that they're maintaining their, 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 uh, their knowledge or the professional knowledge to be able to deliver uh, within the environment as it has changed. And then you've got another agency that registers people that says they are fit to practice, who hand out uh, those registrations. And it's those three bodies working together that then make decisions upon someone's professional future, whether they are allowed to practice or not. So if you don't have that professional registration, you can't practice, regardless of what training you've done. You've got to have that, that registration. And that registration comes from an independent agency away from a national governing body, for example. Mm. So the, you've got the BMA, you've got the various other nurse, radiographer, doctor's bodies, you've got those that deal with different aspects of the medical profession, then you've got the people that hand out the registrations. And I think that's what we're going to be looking at. And that then gives the basis upon which you can have a profession 
operating within a professional environment. We've got coaches <coughs> who, um, I've got, if I take a step back, a qualification means that you have met that standard on that day. There's loads of people with driving licenses out there at the moment who are rubbish drivers. But <laughs> it means that they were able to meet the standard on that particular day. They were competent by someone's opinion. But as time goes on, you know, that needs to be checked. So what we're looking at is where how is someone operating within their specific area? So we have people who operate within voluntary clubs, who work for governing bodies at all different levels, who work within um, higher education establishments, within schools, within various other things, who work for themselves, who work, <coughs> excuse for this cough, um, who work in a range of those different establishments at any given time, and that ebbs and flows, uh, who or who offer one-to-one -one work, however dangerous that might be for them to do so, but they can do that. In tennis, that's regular, that coaches work one-on-one -on -one with uh, another uh, with a, a client. Um, so th there's lots of different ways that that's provided. And in other parts of Europe, for example, those standards are established. There are trade unions in France and there's trade unions in Finland who are helping to establish those and they are being looked at by the EU. I used to sit on what was called the uh, the board of the, uh, the ICCE, uh, the International Coaching Agency, uh, uh, Committee of Excellence, and they you know, were looking to establish body uh, standards for coaches across Europe. Now, we're not going to be part of that for obvious reasons. I'm not going to end to Brexit, um, <laughs> but no, there's that that we will be out of that. But at least it's a step towards that. Mm. And how coaches are viewed in other parts of Europe is very different to how they're viewed in this country, um, and that's because of that sort of viewpoint. They're seen as being far more professional. There is far more training available, which is measured, tested, so that you've not been on a, a day's course and you come away and look, I've got a certificate to say that I was on that. I fell asleep through most of it, but I got my certificate. That means nothing if you're not tested to show that you understand it and you can apply it. And that's where you know, a lot of what we do is wrong at the moment. So you know, as a body, and I realise I'm wandering here there and everywhere that's all right <laughs> we recognized through covid there was all sorts of things going on and it was great there was all sorts of people setting up a whole pile of podcasts like this excellent one that you're doing um with people from all over the world because we could do through zoom um but there was nothing structured to it there was no one looking at that listening to that saying that a falls uh prepare someone for b then c then d then e and so on <clears throat> and People were listening to what was being said um, and it may have been wholly appropriate for the environment that they work within um, or it may have been inappropriate and then no one was checking that the information that was given that someone understood it and was in a position to apply it and why that's important is because a lot of things I deal with when I'm representing coaches are coaches who have picked up a bit of information off the internet and there's loads of it and then applied it within their club and what Bob Bowman did with Michael Phelps is wholly inappropriate for someone working with a bunch of nine to eleven year old kids. <laughs> so, um, no, and no one's testing that. No, yeah. So we've got this platform now, Coach Out of Water, where we are allowing people to learn what they want to learn about uh, in their own time, in whatever rate. But before someone is able to 
take that certificate, if you like, e-certificate, and put that in the journal that sits with Coach Out of Water, they've got to be able to show competence. And that competence is what then goes within the journal. So that if, if you, Clive, decide that you want to um, engage the services of Brian McGuinness as a coach with your programme, then you could look at that and see that not only have they gone through that course, but they've passed the standards required, that they're showing an understanding of the information and can apply it. And that's the key thing around this, all that training and all that structure. It's showing that someone's not just got the knowledge, but they've got the experience to be able to use it and they've got the competence to deliver it. And that are the three underpinning uh, pillars of any insurance policy that we provide, that from England provides or anybody else. It really doesn't matter that you've got the qualification or certificate as they are now, if what you're doing is rubbish, isn't getting the, you know, the correct outcomes, uh, but more importantly, is not safe um, and is likely to do harm, then they won't cover it. They will not cover that. You're not competent to do what you're doing. And, and that's what the training needs to have. And a lot of what happens in a sport like swimming, and it's the same, I've, I've done work in gymnastics and I've done uh, work in a range of other Olympic sports. Um, it's making sure we're really good at handing out certificates and qualifications, but checking someone's ongoing competence to deliver in a changing environment is something that we've not been good at. And it's all based upon, and I say this as a mentor, an assessor, a education deliverer, um, it's all down to opinions. And whenever I've been an assessor in a room full of other assessors, it all boils down to our opinions rather than against set standards because there aren't any. Um, and that's BSC are looking at that. That's why Coach Out of Water's coming in. We're looking to develop and establish those as a professional body representing coaches. Because we recognise that there's good coaches out there. We recognise there's great coaches out there. But we also recognise, like in all activities, all professions, some bad eggs. And there's some people that need a bit more help and a bit more support or shouldn't be even bloody well involved in the sport in the first place. So we recognise all of that. Yeah. No, no, I think that's that's a really, really in, like good in-depth discussion of what it is. Because I, th I really agree with you in all those things. Because we've all, as you said, unfortunately come across bad eggs. And mm -hmm. we, I'm sure we can all meet them. It will know, know someone come to mind at that point. And um, which is a shame in some ways. But then I also think it's, um, and I think you may know a bit more about this than I do, actually, because you've, if I'm not mistaken, you've recently um, had a chat with the American Swim Coaches Association as well. We're now in partnership with the American Swim Coaches Association. Which I think is great, because first of all, they're one of the leading coaching associations yeah, I think, And we're doing likewise with the World Swimming Coaches Association as well, which will yeah. open up other benefits to members too. Yeah, no, no I think that's phenomenal for a start, because... Um, my per like the American Swim Coaches Association. I know I've you, you'll probably know Ron Philpot. Um, yeah. And I've chatted to him, and we've he's taken um, some of the what you call the USA Swimming Coaching um, sort of qualifications as well as take doing the mentoring for the British ones and bits that. And um, from my knowledge of them, and when I was talking to him as well, and um, the American Swim Coaching qualifications are far superior. Than the British ones, they go into far more depth. Not only about your swim coaching, but as you say, how to apply it, how to apply just general business practice, bits that. And maybe if as a mentor yourself, maybe that's something that even the iOS and stuff like that may need to consider in developing themselves. 
there comes a cost and an investment in that. Um, now, ASCA, I've got a huge membership. Not yeah. Like five, six, seven thousand members so, uh, in a country the size of USA. And they have a huge international membership as well. But they're based around coach uh, education and development. That's always been their, 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 their core uh, mantra on what they're trying to do. And they have their core work, but obviously within uh, US swimming, you have high school programs, you've got club programs, you've got university programs, then you've got a smaller, in relative terms, national program. Yeah. Um, and, and you do have a proper professional um, circuit you know, within uh, US, within USA. And that's slowly but surely coming around in, uh, in the UK and, and, and Europe as well. Uh, and you know, that'll grow and we'll see where that goes over the next five, 10 years. Um, but now they have training that supports how swimming, land swim programs are established. And we do that pretty well in this country as well. Um, not as good as it can be, but that's an opinion. Um, but um, no, the, they do have that and that's from America program. So they set those standards. And then that prepares for swimmers moving out of there and then going into a club program, a high school program, a collegiate program, and then uh, a university program and so on. And there's those stepping stones. <coughs> so there's a clear path, if you like, career path for coaches. So their training support programs mirror that. They support coaches to be able to technically, uh, scientifically, physiologically, psychologically, uh, emotionally, and so on, support swimmers who are going through those stepping stones as well. And then from a business management perspective, they have, they call them schools. They have schools in, in sports business management, but they're appropriate. So there's the Swim America schools, there's the high school schools, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's training modules and, and as part of the uh, the World Clinic that the Americans hold every year, um, now there are classes within there. Now there's bits of the, the World Clinic that's fantastic and groundbreaking and you're able to hear some of the, you know, the foremost coaches on the planet speaking, as you used to be able to do on BSA conferences uh, and will be able to do again next, as of next year. But um, they also have these smaller um, events where you can go down and not just get that global information, if you like, but sit down with someone like Bob Bowman and say to him, this is what I do in my club. This is how it's run. How do I apply what you're doing at, as it was with uh, Michigan, but now in uh, Arizona? How do I use some of that with the kids that I'm now working with? And tease it out so that it's appropriate for your need. Yeah. So that we don't have those problems. Now they're beginning to mirror some of what we did. So we're ahead of the game in terms of coach protection and so on. But being able to tap into their huge resources of information is a fantastic thing now. As being part of BSA, you can access that at a much discounted rate. Uh, and likewise with uh, with WISCA, the World Swimming Coaches Association, we'll do likewise. And we're hoping to have partnerships with others. So that if you're going to go on a training camp, the sports abroad, um, then it's not just a case of you book your venue and off you go. There's training to support you to make the most of that time. Yeah. Uh, if you're going to be using a new uh, technology platform for your club to support you and how you deliver the information and gather and analyze the data you're gathering with your swimmers through our partnership with Dell Technologies, you'll be able to do some training to see how to do that best and what's the best equipment for doing that. 
likewise with polar and various others. Um, and so there's various different things it's so that we're trying to establish so that what you do is appropriate to what you need in the environment that you're coaching within at any given time. And that's being professional, not just taking something and running with it and hope it works and learning from lessons, which is part of life anyway, but trying to save you from having that grief and making it far more effective and efficient for you, for your program, <coughs> excuse me, and the swimmers that you work with from day one. And that's what we're, we're, we're trying to, to do. And working with the Americans is one of the ways that are going to allow us to do that. And likewise, other parties, partners all over the globe. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's key because as much as everyone will hate to admit it, the Americans for me is leading the way in most ways. Um, for a long time and will continue to do so for some time yet. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're not doing too bad at that level. No, no, I'll, I'll give you that. British swimming has increased at the top level. I'm going to, this is where my bit uh, comes The top level of British swimming is great, but I feel like we could do a lot of work at the bottom levels. Um, it, so in, in my head, um, I feel... Um, how do I describe this? So USA Swimming is, you could say the swimming industry is a business in the US. Um, and I think this, to be fair, goes on a little bit to what I want to talk about in a bit. Swimming industry is a business in the US. Swimming clubs are businesses. They're run by business people. They're um, organized as businesses. They're organized to make, make profits, which can be reinvested back into the clubs. Um, so in the sense of, the way I like to describe it is their product is performance. The way they make money is by producing fast swimmers because that attracts new membership, bits like that. Um, product is performance. And in that sense, I feel the US have got that down. But then British swimming over here, we're still in this very old amateur kind of setup where we're not, product's not performance, if you know what I mean. It's, um, and we, we don't have a swimming industry as such. We have amateur swimming or gra grassroots swimming could be far more professionalized, far more business orientated. Though you could say it's a very capitalist view at this point, but it's the point of putting swimming clubs making more money to put more money into the, into the swimming itself will help develop performance in itself because there is now more money in swimming. Um, but that, that's my view. I've been... That's a very base level view, but <laughs> I mean, you can probably come in here and tear that apart if you want. <laughs> um, well, there's two aspects. What are swimming clubs there for? Uh, to no, get right? people swimming, okay. isn't it? Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and it's this and the challenge for coaches all over the, the country and the challenge for um, clubs all over the country is balancing this ethos of community versus performance. And I know governing bodies have, have got a view upon that. Now, the British Swimming set up for a very clear aim. It's funded through UK Sport to perform at Olympic Games, World Championships, Europeans, and then have that trickle down. Maybe not a good term at the moment, but um, no, that, that trickles down for Commonwealth Games uh, and, and that sort of area. So <coughs> that's what they're geared up for. And they're doing... A really good job at that, that level so no hats off to them it's no one can to knock that based purely upon the um the the medal uh tallies that we get these days compared to 20 years or so ago for example however um 
that community versus performance at club level isn't really being helped. This is a personal view, and I think it's a BSA view as well, in that, that the way that coaches are supported maybe could be done differently to be able to ensure that we have that smooth pathway in the way that I described about US swimming, which is not perfect either, mm. but no, it's um, that we have that structure. And at the moment, it's very much robbing Peter to pay Paul, that we have people who do really well at summer nationals, for example, find themselves maybe being encouraged to move on to other places. And there used to be, no, it used to be that uh, we had, uh, I used to be the swimming development officer for Oldham a number of decades ago. And we had an established structure where I was employed by the local authority. There were seven local clubs in the area. They were all given X amount of pool time at peppercorn rates for that, that pool time. With the agreement that they do up to that level. So our learn swim programme would feed into those local clubs. Those cl local clubs would develop them up to set standards and compete up to county level, higher if they wanted, but that was the, the recognised level. And then depending upon performance, kids would then be drafted into or would have the opportunity to join the council's advanced training scheme or the development programme that sat just below that that supported the clubs as well. Um, and then in the advanced training programme, the council would pay for the coaches that were in there. And then there was a separate club, Older Metro it was called, it's now Older Aquatics, um, but Older Metro it was called then. Um, and it was based around the old City Leeds programmes, Barnet Cocktail as still is, um, uh, City of Birmingham as is. It was based around that sort of thinking and ethos around that. Now, unless you're in those sort of geographic areas, you will get to certain standards. And then the kids, the club I'm involved in at Wild Forest, we don't we take kids up to university age and then they go off to those universities and I prepare them for that. They still compete for us in arena leagues and at county level, but not above that, maybe at regional level as well. Um, but at national level, they're competing for University of Bath or Loughborough or Manchester, wherever they go. And they do that with my blessing. I have no problems at all because I recognise the limitations of what we're able to provide. But we prepare them for that. But that's because I'm a grizzly old guy that's been around for 40 years. I've seen how that's best uh, for the individual and for the swimmer. And a lot of people don't always see that. And not all of them. I, um, whilst we did have some go off, there was a lot stayed with the programme. And we had sports science. and We took blood from the swimmers. And we had a sports psychologist and we had a physio. In a club programme, you're likely not to have the finances to do that. So should, where I am, Worcester County be providing that? Should the region be providing that you know, as an ongoing thing? And I think that's possibly the way that we should be looking, is that when kids to get to a certain standard, if they've not got the academic support to be able to go to university or the, the ability, or don't want to, because they like where they are, if they, um, for whatever reason, they want to stay within their locale or they need that leg up to get that standard to then make that leap, then should we be at a regional level be doing more than just the camps that we're running? Should we have ongoing support that supports the clubs that are within that regional area? Now, that was the whole idea that when Nixel would originally set up, um, the, I've forgotten the name of them now, but what are now hub clubs, now, for them to set up, 
and it meant that people could come into that program, be supported within that, that program, but then go back Monday to Friday within their own local club program. And that then becomes, it means that you, you don't need to leave your club to go there, which has all sorts of damage to the club that you've just left. You're able to have that continuity. <clears throat> and using the Oldham example, our kids would come into Oldham Metro and into the program, but at least once a week, they would go back and train with their local swimming clubs. They still had that ownership. And we had kids who were national age group champions, would come in with a Great Britain European junior kit or their England intermediate squad kit. That shows how long ago I'm talking about. Um, and their national medals. And they would go back to their home clubs and show this off. And that showed you know, on a regular basis and train alongside them, compete alongside them in, in the speedo league as was at, at, up to a point. Um, and they would compete alongside them. And that was great encouragement for those kids who were then coming through. They saw what that pathway was. And at the moment, we've got a situation which is great for some, but not for others, and certainly not always good for the clubs that they leave behind. A situation on occasion where kids come up and then go off to another programme and are lost to that programme that they've got. And I'm pleased to say that in a number of university programmes, they don't do that. So like Bath, with uh, the university programme there, Mark Skimmings allows the swimmers the opportunity, if they so wish, to go back and do arena leagues for their, their old home clubs, uh, do county level and even regional level competitions for their home clubs. So that's great that that's happening. And I know that operates in, in most in, in Manchester with Matt Rose and uh, through the University of, of Loughborough programmes and so on. I know that that still occurs. If kids go off to America, that ain't going to happen, is it? <laughs> it's not easy to get back on a Saturday afternoon for an arena league uh, from Florida or wherever. But no, that still happens. But it's that marrying the two, the needs of those local clubs, who long term are going to feed those programmes. And if you just take them away and they go off to some other programmes elsewhere, I'm not going to name them, but and they're lost, then that isn't helpful to what's left behind. And that, that's one of the, the key things that we've got lots of good community clubs trying to do a great job that's performance in the long term. And it's recognising and establishing that and supporting that <coughs> so that all aspects of the sport are being supported and coaches are getting this knowledge and seeing how to use it. Um, and I know that there's... Swim England, for example, are setting standards around various things about weight training, strength and conditioning and so on. There's some great people out there who are doing fantastic work in strength and conditioning they're maybe being limited in what they can do. And that's maybe a bit um, dramatic, but it is what's happening. And, you know, and, and I certainly know some coaches and some programmes that are, 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 getting, are having problems because of that. And some of it's based upon facts, but a lot of it's based upon perception uh, of, of jealousy and envy through those people who've got off their backsides and done it. But if you've got a properly uh, qualified, competent individual do the job well, then you know, that should be encouraged and supported. It's where it's being done in a way that isn't appropriate and uh, isn't properly overseen. That's when it becomes a potential danger and should be looked into and where necessary stopped. But there's an awful lot of good people out there that are properly trained to do it beyond the qualifications that Swim England, for example, now provide. There's yeah. loads of good training out there and a lot of good people that are doing good things in the right way for the long-term development of the athlete through OADF uh, or 
that people still use LTAD and other slightly different button up, but still looking at it from a, a longevity point of view for the athlete uh, at any given time. I know I'm wandering off, so I hope I'm still answering your question. No, no, no. I, all this is great stuff. I, I like it when people uh, have a little adventure because I'm quite we, passionate. No, I, I can tell, and it's good. I like it. But I think I, I agree. Like, I think everything you just said, I fully agree with. And um, it was actually, I was chatting to Nathan, um, your colleague, um, the other week about this. And we were talking about, you were saying there about losing swimmers to university programs and stuff like that. Um, but I, and I agree with you. I think the progress, there's only a certain point where swimming clubs can unfortunately cater for a certain level of athletes, you, whether that's age as well, because as you get older, you need a different style of training than you will when you're younger, younger and stuff like this, um, neurologically and whatever, mm -hmm. all the those bits. But um, it was, we, we discussed sandpipers as an example for this instance. And um, they have swimmers who reach a pro level or they're off to university. Um, but they also have a sort of like a funding scheme where they're paying those pro athletes to wear sandpipers kit at national level competitions and stuff mm -hmm. like this, mm -hmm. um, which is also a monetary stream anyway to yeah. keep older athletes in the sport. Because this is another mm -hmm. big thing that I'm about is once you've left university, or even if you haven't even been able to reach university, swimming's done at that point, unfortunately, in this country. Because yes, you could say, oh, we've got master swimming. But unfortunately, master swimming at a certain point doesn't reach the same point you can reach if you continue yeah. in performance swimming in that mm -hmm. sense. So um, that's another area where I think swimming in this country lacks. By the time you've reached 18, you haven't gone to university. Your swimming career is done at that point, unfortunately, if you want to progress to a higher level. Um, and maybe taking on that board of that American system where there is still financial abilities for swimmers to swim, um, whether that be small or whether that be you don't have to pay for the training because you've reached a certain level and you're representing the club at that point um, or bits like that. But there is a point where swimming at a certain age becomes very difficult in this country. Um, to certain standards, yes. No, yes, that, to certain standards, no. yeah. Uh, that, uh, is this issue over no, the, the professionalism? No, is, can you... Is being a professional swimmer a career option? No, it is for some. If you are you know, a very elite performer, yes, there is. And you know, I think people got to accept that there is a diminishing number of people who uh, will ever, ever make it up to that level within our sport. So, um, but how do you make that decision? And that's the big question mark. And that's some people's job to do that. So, no, we recognize that, accept that, and we support that. Um, but is that the one and only way of going down that path. You look at football, for example, now, lower levels of, of the sport. There's lots of people play football and so on um, to a lower level, but professionally um, and, and still do it and they love it and it keeps them in the sport. Now, I know that we're looking at establishing a university league now uh, within the UK, uh, which you'll think will be helpful for those that are able to get into those areas. But do we then need to be looking at, well, what's the potential for <coughs> a cheaper version of the ISL that isn't ISL, that's uh, a British swimming league uh, with professional teams within it that could be some of those university teams uh, or professional teams established either through uh, aspects of Millfield School or through Nova or through City of Manchester uh, or some of those other programmes. Now, 
that would have been an avenue in Oldham that we possibly could have, have gone down because of the, the infrastructure. It then encourages a sport in a slightly different way. Now, we're not talking about people earning the sorts of money that professional footballers at Man City and Man United and so on are earning. Uh, they don't do that in the ASL when they get paid. Uh, they, don't, <laughs> they, they, they don't get that. Um, but that opportunity for you to continue your competitive career, um, I think, is uh, beyond your academic capabilities, uh, professional capabilities, so, and so on. So th there is that possibility. But you remember, there was a time, not so long ago, when Six Nations was Five Nations in rugby, rugby union, uh, where that was largely, well, it was amateur sportsmen within amateur clubs in England and Scotland and Ireland and so on. And then the professional leagues come in. Now, I'm 16 miles down the road, well, listen, that, 12 miles down the road from Six Ways, where uh, Worcester uh, Warriors have just gone into administration. Now, is that a good model then? Is that the way to go forward? Because uh, we've got people there that are now losing their livelihoods because the club can't support them. So it has to be measured in terms of you know, what does it actually look like and what's its reason and purpose. Places like, I'm a Man United fan, now I lived in Manchester for a long, long time, and, and so I can truly say that I'm a Mancunian from that point of view, my kids were born there. Uh, so I have a reason to, to support them. Um, but they've got a long, long history, as have many football clubs all over this country, that are entrenched within the community that they're uh, based within. Millwall, Crystal Palace, all these, they're entrenched in their local communities. Swimming clubs and swimming programmes some of them are, some of them aren't. And without that background, it's difficult to get that loyalty of following. And as soon as you bring in money into things, the motivations change and the motivations for people doing things. So it's, we've got to be really careful around that, how we go forward with it. Um, and even in the States, now it's all money driven and people will go and so on. <coughs> and it's good, <coughs> but is it taking it to where <coughs> excuse me, taking it to where it needs to be or could be um, and there's money and assist in that or is it actually hindering the progress and I think we need to be looking at that and be careful about that. I don't know the answer at this moment in time. There's people far more intelligent than I uh, that, um, that have maybe got those answers but um, there's potential for it but how big it will ever be here, I don't know. As a European league, it's maybe got more legs. Yeah, that's got more possibilities around it. Uh, anything beyond that, you're then getting into really big, big bucks. Where, and we'll see what's happened with the ISL, whether it's going to continue or not, and some of the issues around that. It was a great spectacle, but how much impact did it actually have? Was that ever measured? Yeah, did yeah. Any, right. I, I know that some of my swimmers went down and bought the London Road Kit and went and watched it at the um, at the Aquatic National Aquatic Centre down in London. Um. But how much impact? I'm not sure that I saw any more swimmers coming through the door at our programme because they'd watched the ISL. Whereas if there's something that's a bit more entrenched locally that we're able to show some of our guys uh, of, are part of that, that that's publicised locally, the results of that individual in the, in the, the European Swimming League or whatever they, they end up calling it, uh, has done this, then that might have that impact in the same way as the Olympics and to some extent world championships do, but certainly the Olympics and the Commonwealth Games do. Um, you know, those are huge marketing tools for the sport. But 
AS album, if you, it did have that. Um, and uh, it had some positive impacts, but maybe not for the, the wider fraternity of swimming. No, I, and I, I fully agree with you there, actually. As much as ISL was incredible, I don't think it it just it was just something for swimmers to watch rather than yeah. actually something to boost swimming. It was good. Yeah, it well, no, was it was good. very good. It was different yeah. and so on. So it was brilliant, yes, from that point of view. But yeah. in terms of being a business tool, how much of a business tool for uh, for us to encourage new members? Somebody yeah. might shoot me down, they've got the stats, and if they have, hands up. Um, but... Uh, within our locality, I didn't see that impact. Um, yeah. Maybe that's what we've got to be trying to, to get it to do. No, I, and I, I, I do agree with you with that, in that sense. Um, I think another thing you said there, which is quite interesting, is you're talking about um, individual athletes, sort of like going to the Olympics, going to European, something like that, and that being at a local level is very good because it's, it's tangible at that point. Um, and I think agree with you in that sense i think what would be great is it's that intermediary isn't it so you look at um i know when i was younger you look at olympians and you're like they're a di- they're a different they're in a different category aren't they you almost feel mm-hmm. very separated from them um but then when you get older you realize that they're just there if you know what i mean and hopefully when you get good enough like you see you you see them regularly in their environment anyway so but having that stepping stone almost you need so in every swimming club hopefully has a point where they have a swimmer that reaches a national level hopefully or a regional level or something like that some a point of level that's seen as high if you know me or a higher level of swimming and maybe it's something where that needs to be capitalized more that on a local level that stepping stone someone who's at a national level is far easier to comprehend than an olympic level at that point but that person at a national level will hopefully progress into an Olympic level, but having that closer to home, tangible kind of interaction is maybe something more than an Olympic level. I don't know. That that's just a thought there. Yeah, that, that's down to a wider education sphere for you know, very often club committees and then relationships with, lo- with local press. And uh, no, no, we don't have anybody on on the Olympic team. Uh, this time around because uh, well it's a bit limiting with only six hours pool time a week now the press don't understand that but that needs to be explained as to what your aims aspirations are for your club and what you're capable of doing and what success looks like for you and it could well be county level and on a good day um regional level not making a final or winning a a medal of some color um and whereas there's others no i've done that wire forest where we've gone from um getting a handful of medals at county level through to suddenly being a, a force at regional level and having a whole pile of swimmers at, at summer nationals um, that the club has never had before and swimmers upon swimmer making finals and, and picking up medals and getting on national programmes and so on. It's understanding what outcomes are but what you need to do to get those outcomes and then explaining that to the press so that they understand it and why it's important that you have that regular bit of information in the press every week. No good having a website if no one's encouraged to go and um, use it. So that's where your Facebooks and your social media, but other people's Facebooks and other people's social media is then useful to you to then direct that traffic back to you so that then people see what you're about, what you do, how you do it, and what you get for it. Yeah. So it's, it's understanding those whole concepts that used to be the thing. Now, uh, what we did, we're going back to all the metro again. 
we had great relationships with the local press and they were contacting us for the stories every week rather than us chasing and hoping they might put something in. And Oldham Athletic were in the Premier League at that time. So no, we were getting news above them. So, but we were in regularly. Um, and that's more difficult these days because there's local press, there's less of it. Um, it's in a different format and there's lots of information for people and being newsworthy is a really difficult thing now. So it's either going to be highly dramatic um, well, to, to make this go global, I'd have to say something really, really dramatic. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that today, <laughs> right? Uh, but no, I'm tempted as I am. But there are, uh, it's being able to get the eye of the public against all the other news and information that's now readily available to people is more and more difficult. And it does boil down to being local, being relevant um, and being exciting and very often either ultra positive or ultra negative. And that's what people tend to um, be drawn towards. One's great and one's less so. Yeah. Um, so it's it's that's the difficult thing that's modern society that we're, we're trying to establish within. Um, and the ISL didn't do that, but maybe there is something that we can do that's got a bit more local relevance. Yeah. No, I, I, and I think that's something that in time we'll all just, things will come together and piece that together. I've got one last question for you because we've, we've gone all the way over here a little bit, which is fine. I, I think it's still a really interesting conversation. But the last question was more about um, we're bringing it right back to how we were, um, a model. So a, the club's model um, to make a more professional organisation and bits like that, because we were talking about how clubs could be more business orientated, more professional orientated and bits like that. Um, if we could, what would you describe describe as the best or a club model that, that will best accommodate coaches, swimmers and the community, because community is always key in all this, um, to develop swimming and the swimmers in that sense? A long piece of string. Um, <laughs> it really depends upon geographically where you are. Now, um, okay, okay. Let, let's well, put some parameters in this maybe. Um, let's say you're with... with Go fairly large here. We're sitting in a city. You're in a city, um, central in the county, sort of that area there. Okay, well, there's... In order to answer your question, let's think about... There are some... Lots of the big programmes are established. If we take the university programmes out of it, because they're in a, a false environment, because um, Bath's in, in the middle of the countryside, sub in, in Wiltshire, sub. Um, but city of Manchester... City of Glasgow, what was City of Edinburgh and the Edinburgh programmes, you've got a big base in Aberdeen to some extent the same and, and various other places. So you've got big established places there <coughs> where you've got lots of people around. So those programmes need to be have an agreed structure as to what I said about um, Oldham all those years ago. They were based upon the needs locally like they do in Leeds, like they do in to some extent City of Birmingham and so on, right? So you've got local clubs' needs operating up to a particular level with them having an understanding and a knowledge and a willingness to then pass swimmers of a particular standard onto those higher achieving programmes. So it's relevant for them to do so. But there's got to be, there's a quid pro quo in this. There's got to be something back for them. So it's your structures having an understanding and a willingness and acceptance to, to go through those various stages. And how that operates within a, a big city type 
programme and club structure is very different to somewhere here in rural Worcestershire and <coughs> Herefordshire and so on, where I can drive for five minutes. I'm in the middle of nowhere. So the establishment around that and the challenges around that, just getting a swimmer to training is very, very different. Now, it's highly reliant upon parents and friends and so on, getting someone in a car off to training 10 minutes down the road. Um, and because the buses aren't there, whereas in a big city environment, they can do that. They can jump on a tram, they can jump on a bus and they're there. So we, we train four to six, 6.30 in an afternoon straight after school in Oldham and in Greater Manchester area. Can't do that in, in rural Worcestershire. Five o'clock is a real push. 5.30 is a possibility. And in some places, they can't get in the pool until 7.30. So there's, it boils down to what's available and what your club wants out of it. And in order to have that professional outcome, you've got to have a professional infrastructure. But sometimes it's just not possible to have that professional infrastructure. So you've got to cut your cloth in order to, to achieve that. Or you look at ways of establishing that infrastructure. And you can do that by competitive meets, by battling your, your local competitors, uh, or working in partnership with them, and job sharing and so on. And I think that's where you know, the county structures in those sorts of areas have got to look closely at their relationships with local schools, local further education establishments, because not everybody can go to Kelly and to Millfield and to places like that. Not everyone can do that. But can we do mirror those sorts of models that show that they work in a locality around Worcestershire that goes in partnership with another or a series of educational establishments so that the schools then get something out of it, the clubs get something out of it, and the swimmers are appropriately per, uh, prepared for the, le level, the levels that they aspire to within the programmes that they're operating within. So that's that's a different model to what you can provide within um, a, big, a big city environment, which then maybe has a university link to it. And, and that's what Sheffield have, have done pretty successfully over the years. And they're, they're running a very successful program at this moment in time. Uh, and that's been established since Pond's Forge and developed since Pond's Forge was established 30 years ago now? 30 yeah, years it was ago. for the, um, what was it, for the University Games or something, wasn't it? Yeah, the, yeah. yeah the, so 91, that was, the pool was built for, and then European Championships were there in 92, 93. Uh, but the, that started at around 92. Uh, sorry, it was there. It was used for the Barcelona Olympic Trials in '92, so the the um, uh, the World University Games, come on, was it the Olympiad or whatever? It was '91, yeah. I think. So it was open for that. So, but now the city of Sheffield established at that time, and looking at that then as a city-run program, it's now a club program that mm. operates within city facilities in partnership with a whole range of clubs around uh, the area. And supports all of them and then you've got DaVinci just down the road that's got the new pool um, and that again is that model of in a semi-rural area clubs feed in they all accept what's above them and they develop and prepare swimmers for that so there's different models for different parts of the, the country that is relative and relevant to their needs and it isn't one model as no. some will try and tell you it isn't one model there's a range of different models uh, that are available and how you engage and employ um, and uh, coaches 
and professionals within that will be slightly different as a result. So, you know, there, there, there's loads of opportunities still, but it can't be Rob Peter to pay Paul and just, you're a great swimmer, you go there. That doesn't work because it causes other, leaves other difficulties behind. And I'm afraid that is the, um, the raison d'etre of, of some within the sport still. And we used to moan about the American programmes doing that, the American universities doing that before funding, because um, they were rife for doing that, coming to our uh, national championships and talent spotting. Yeah. And encouraging kids to go off to university or wherever. And we didn't like it. And now we're doing it within some of our own programmes, which is bittersweet, to say the least, at times. Yeah. No, I... I yeah, no, I just think that's... Is a really interesting way to put it. Like, I, I agree with you. I do agree with you because it's important about local local swimming clubs and bits like that. Because I think that's the uh, that's. It. I've just never heard someone put it so eloquently like that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, it really hit me. I, I don't think there's much more I could say to that because yeah, though that's exactly how I would how I'd see it too. <laughs> Good. Yeah, we no. to end then? yeah, I was going to say, like, perfect, saw it. There's no other question I can answer that to. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to uh, listen and actually have a, a different conversation and more conversation about swimming clubs as a structure and mm -hmm. swimming in general as a business. Mm -hmm. that. So thank you so much for coming on. No problem at all. Anytime. And um, enjoyed it. for our listeners out there, if you want to listen to the podcast, remember you can have it on Spotify or any other platforms. If you want to enjoy or engage more in the conversations you can join the love swim uh, love swimming facebook group um and bits like that and on there we have daily conversations about swimming learn to swim bits like that so get involved on and that if you want to join the the, the bsca uh, oh. uh, the, the only independent uh, coaching representative body in the country go to www.gbswimcoaches.co.uk and you can join. And if people outside the UK want to, to join, there's an international membership as well. Uh, but that gives you membership of us, membership of Whisker, and a discounted membership of the American Swimming Coach Association as well. I, I highly recommend that, too. That was a good plug, that. I was going to ask for a plug in a second. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, definitely do that. I highly recommend that, too. Um, once again, thank you so much for coming on. It's been Pleasure. great. Thank you.